Welcome to the CU20 podcast. We are a group of Christians living in Montreal, looking at issues relevant to faith in Jesus Christ in this day and age, and how to serve him faithfully in our world. The topic of the sermon today is sex. What did God make it for? Inspired by a whole bunch of um, either terrible sex talks that I have been part of uh, as a recipient, not as a give up, but um, hopefully not. Uh, also, many stories that I've heard of terrible uh, ways that either church or like sort of parents or peers, not peers, I suppose, like you know, people in authority have tried to approach the issue of sex. And so I thought I wanted to start off with one of the best sex talks I've ever heard tonight, found in the iconic, nay, classic movie, Mean Girls, which if you do not love, we can't be friends. Uh, and it's Coach Kerr. He's going to tell us all about oh sex. missionary tradition, don't have sex standing up, just don't do it, promise? Okay, everybody pick some rubbers. At your age, you're going to be having a lot of urges. You're going to want to take off your clothes and touch each other. But if you do touch each other, you will get chlamydia. <laughs> there you go, guys. Okay. We're done. Timeless wisdom of Coach Kerr. All right. I don't have a segue. That's it. I just really wanted to play that clip because I love the movie. <laughs> so typically that is the kind of, sadly, the kind of response that is how churches deal with the topic. Not exactly like that, but what we found in the past is that the extent of dealing with the topic of sex uh, at church has been like, just don't do it. Like, don't, just don't do it. Like, that's it. That's it. Like, it's bad. Don't do it. And it leaves no room for questions. And there, it leaves no uh, opportunity to uh, really focus on, I think, the wholeness of the Bible's teaching on sex. Uh, and what you get at the end of the day is just this kind of really bad awkwardness around the topic that leads to like silence and, and people living in confusion and people li- living in I guess shame a lot of time if they have like a, a difficult past uh, often a past that they were not uh, they were victims of rather than perpetrators of as well and so what I want to do tonight is um, address the topic because the reality is that if we don't talk about it as a church it's not like people are not going to f- like learn about sex right like it's everywhere around us, and so, you know, primarily from media and our computer screens, we are learning all the time about sex, and it's usually very, very bad lessons. Uh, we're getting taught things that are very unrealistic, and I think often very damaging, and so I don't want to add to the silence and the awkwardness of the topic. I want to go in the opposite direction. I want to open it up uh, to look at sex from a biblical perspective, because I'm convinced that Christianity is actually very, very like, body positive. Like it's very, it, it has a glorious view of sex. It, it, sex uh, is not a dirty thing, biblically speaking. It's not like a base desire, like some kind of animalistic thing that we do. Uh, if you are prudish, if you are like more conservatively minded, then I think there are parts of the Bible that are gonna be incredibly uncomfortable for you to read. Um, should we read one? Yeah, let's yes. do it. All right. Pro- <laughs> Proverbs 5.19 is one of my favorites. Look, everyone brings their Bible. And now I know how to get you to bring your Bible. So see you try. <laughs> Proverbs 5.19. <clears throat> a loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. It's sweet being intoxicated by your young wife's breasts. That is what it's talking about. Yeah, feel uncomfortable, but not for too long. That is one very small example of the fact that, and often in quite a lot of places all over scripture, I mean, there's a whole book of the Bible dedicated to romantic love and sex, which is Song of Solomon, or Song of Songs. That's the point of it. Jewish boys were not allowed to read the book of Song of Songs until they were 16 years old. 
that, that's because they consider it a kind of a risque book. And it is, you read it. Like it's, you know, the English tries to kind of like flower up the metaphors, but there's some really like interesting imagery going on in there as well. The Bible has a compelling and beautiful view of sex. And it was ahead of its time in terms of the pagan religions of the science had a very broken, not, not to say that they were unrestrictive, a lot of them were very uh, loose, but they didn't uh, affirm the goodness of sex. And more than that, they certainly didn't see men and women as, as of equal status and equal recipients of the joy and the goodness of sex either. Men highly outranked women in terms of their, um, uh, their freedom within sex and what uh, they, could, they could take out of it. Uh, the Bible comes in and it says some gloriously uh, beautiful things about sex and also some things that are equally to men and to women. Uh, and so I, I, that's what I want to focus on today. I think I'm, I'm tired of the bad lessons of just like, don't do it and, and it's a bad thing and shut up and that's, that's all you get told. I want to talk about the fact that the Bible teaches uh, a glorious view of it. And obviously the Bible teaches that God has created sex. And that it's created for a purpose, that sex cannot be something that uh, fits in with preferences. It's something that has a particular role in our life, and that it's, and it's not sort of a designer, right? Like, you have to use it for what it's supposed to be used for, and if you don't, then you can't expect it to work in the same way. You can't expect to achieve the same results out of it. Uh, I know I use this metaphor a lot, but if you kind of use your iPhone to, like, hammer in a nail, it's like, it'll, it'll kind of work, but that's really... A, a stupid idea. Like you, you're really going to be just like messing up your iPhone, and you're going to be uh, not doing a very good job of hammering the nail at the end of the day. Anyway, that's the same kind of idea that is talking about here. Like there's a design to sex. Like it was created for a purpose, and the purpose, according to the scripture of sex, is that it was designed to be within a covenantal marriage. Like that. That's its purpose to to exist within that realm. And it's, it does that because it is a covenant-making, a covenant-maintaining, and a covenant-deepening act. So we're going to unfold exactly what that means. But I just want to make a caveat here to say, I want to be very careful when I talk about a covenantal marriage, because I'm not just talking about a marriage. There's a lot of really toxic, bad, loveless marriages out there, and it is not okay with God that that's the case. Uh, sex can be incredibly abusive within a marriage. Sex can be incredibly toxic within a marriage as well, and, and that would make it absolutely sinful in God's eyes. It's not like getting married is this magic wand that wave, you wave over it, and all of a sudden any sex within that type, of that type of relationship is suddenly okay in God's eyes. That is not the case at all. And so, but we do see marriage as being linked in with sex because they, they, the purpose of sex and, the, and, and the, what marriage is go hand in hand and come together really well. So like I said, it's, for a, it's a covenant deepening act. Through, and a covenant is basically what a marriage is, is two people giving themselves over to the other people. When it says the two will become one flesh, it's really talking about you are really donating yourself over to the other person, over to this union, and you're becoming something new. But the, the act of a covenant is found in this, you are releasing yourself to the other person, and you're releasing yourself to their care, and you're adopting, you're going to care for their needs, and they're going to care for your needs. You're no longer going to chase after your own fulfillment. You're going to chase after the fulfillment and the flourishing of your spouse. And they're, they're going to chase after the same thing for you as well. And the reason that this can happen and the reason that we can talk about it being a covenant-deepening act is because Scripture teaches that sex is not simply a purely physical act, but involves your whole being. That it's a, it's a soulish endeavor, that, that some part of your inner being is affected by this. And it's in the giving over of yourself and the bonding that takes place. And so if that's the case, if, if sex is much more than just a physical act, that it has this whole being type of giving over that happens in it, and this has implications for both sides of marriage. The first side that we see is that within marriage, God strongly, I would say, commands. I say that with a sense of hesitation because I understand that there will be seasons of a marriage in which sex is very difficult or even impossible. So there's a little asterisk next to that word command, but I'll say God strongly commands sex within a marriage. 
First uh, Corinthians seven, three to five, we find that. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife. And this is, this is talking about sex, by the way. Likewise, the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband in the same way. The husband does not have authority over his body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you might devote yourselves to prayer. This gives an idea of marriage in which both partners are consenting and really giving over the authority of their body to the other as an act of love and devotion. And you can fast, like it, it, it would be appropriate to fast from sex in terms of like a spiritual discipline in order to, you know, get to pray more and to get closer with God. But that should be seen as a, like fasting, like a disruption of the normal pattern. The normal pattern should be that there is a healthy give and take sex life within marriage. And this is a good thing. This is something that God wants and it, it, it achieves something within a marriage. So we see that sex isn't simply a physical act and because within a marriage it performs an essential role and then outside of a marriage we see that god prohibits sex outside of marriage because it has this uh, this giving element to it the soulish side of it and what it would result in is creating what we could call a dissonant act in which one part of you is facing in one direction, and the other part of you is facing in the other direction. And so it's dissonant. There's a, there's, a, there's a divergence of self happening. There's a divergence of will happening. Because physically, you're giving yourself over to this other person in the act of sex. Yet, there's all the other aspects of you in which you have no desire to do that. You do not desire to bond yourself to them uh, socially or spiritually or emotionally. Uh, you, that is left off the table. And so there's a dissonance that's created in here in which you are moving in two directions at the same time. And so because of this, it has repercussions in life. You can't simply do these kinds of things and expect that nothing will come of that. There, there will be brokenness, and, or at least putting yourself in very dangerous situations when you do this. Uh, Timothy Keller says, Sex is the most powerful way God has created to give yourself to another human being. He's right. When you think about all the ways that I could express my desire to, to know you and to be known by you, my desire to, to show love towards you. Sex is an incredibly powerful, if not the most powerful way of doing that. And so, sorry, I lost my train of thought for a second there. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12 to 20, we can jump off from that idea and see, like, with a round view, what God, what, what Paul is, is speaking of here, and, and it's in Scripture. Here, verse 12. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will, be not, I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord Jesus from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever unites with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in, uh, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. There's so much to unpack there. And starting from the end, we see that God didn't design sex to be a private matter, in that he has, he has a will for this. This isn't something that my body, I get to do with my body, what I want. As Christians, our body belongs to God, that every single part of us has, has been 
and will be redeemed by God, that your body matters. That flies in the face of the pagan ideas of the day to say, do whatever you want with your body, because at the end of the day, only your soul will remain, your body will perish. Therefore, whatever you do with your body, it's of little concern. Paul is saying, what you do with your body matters. God cares about that. He redeemed your body in the same way that he redeemed your soul. And so your body is not your own. You belong to God. And so you cannot take what belongs to God and do something, something sinful with it. Do something that would be against his will with it. So for a Christian, what we do with our body, this is kind of this is God's property. And we have to take that seriously. More than that, we see that there's a special thing about sin and about sex in which it's a sin that affects us in ways that other sins might not. It's uniquely able to bring a brokenness into us because it's a, it's a sin against our own self. We sin against ourselves. And we could see that if we have a more relaxed, a more uh, freeing view of sex, it can lead to a lot of pain down the line. And we can see that culturally speaking all over the place. And now, as I go into this, I am completely aware of the fact that what we are talking about tonight, culturally speaking, is ludicrous. The idea that sex should only be within a marriage and that anything outside of that would be against God's will, that, culturally speaking, is ridiculous. So far as to say they would say it is unhealthy to have such a view. That if you were to have such a, a restrictive view of sex, you're going to cause damage to a person. And so we're very much at odds on this issue, whereas we're saying no, by having such a, a freedom, like such a liberal view of sex, you're causing damage. And they're saying, with having such a restrictive view of sex, you're causing damage. So we're really at odds with culture in a lot of ways here. And so how we go from this, we need to know that we had a tide of culture against us. And let's not take that lightly. Because we are fools to think that culture will not affect us. That the peers around us that we interact with every day, good people that, that, that you know, uh, have just a different point of view to us, will not affect us. Of course it's going to affect us. Of course we're going to be influenced by these things. And it's going to take a very strong stance and a very vivid view of what God is calling us to in order for us to have the strength we need to stay with God here. And so as we're taking that stance, let's do it strongly. I would say, focusing for a little while on the negative side of things, we see that many problems arise out of the tendency that, that sex has to create bonds. You cannot, like I said before, it's designed with a purpose in mind, and you cannot free it from that purpose without really breaking it completely. So aside from deliberately disabling this like, connecting aspect of sex, or by just having sex so repeatedly that you numb that completely, sex will lead to you wanting to couple up with this person, with expressing uh, grand feelings of love and commitment. You know, that's why, like in so many of the, the media's portrayal of sex, people have these sort of, these moments of being like, oh, I will always love you, I'll always be with you. That's what sex does. It leads to these great feelings of wanting to express your commitment and wanting, desiring to be with this person. And so if you're doing that, and you're feeling these ways prematurely outside of a covenantal relationship which is established in order to be the proper grounding for such feelings, then you're, then you're just walking into a potential disaster scene. Because it leads to such pain down the line when relationships end. I've had a lot of people, a lot of people in my office who express deep regret at the fact that they allowed their relationship to get sexual, sexual quickly. Because it makes the breakup incredibly hard. Much, much harder than it would have been without it. Not only that, but it also clouds your judgment within the relationship. Like I said, it leads to these grand feelings and this desire to express them. So it clouds your judgment to a person who you want to be able to have a sober-minded view of them. Let's say you're interested in a person and you begin to date with them and you want to really know them deeply and to understand the compatibility between, it, between you two. When you allow it to become sexual, your vision is clouded. You're not going to see the person the way that 
you would otherwise because now you're going to be wanting to give over to them all of these things because you're doing you're already doing it you're already coupling up with them physically and your your heart's going to pull you in that direction as well it can lead to these kinds of pain and again when we go back to that dissonant act what we're doing there's there's a disrespect here to the other person that you know, C.S. Lewis describes the act of sort of uh, of having sex outside of covenant or commitment. He says it's akin to tasting food without swallowing or digesting it. That's quite a vivid imagery, and I think it's it's vivid on purpose. You imagine tasting something, and then what do you do if you don't swallow if you don't swallow it? Well, you've got to spit it out again, right? To have this type of dishonesty about uh, what you're doing with your body versus what you're doing with the rest of your life, I think there's a disrespect that's being shown there as well. Remember that we are called to love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Like our primary calling towards each other is to edify each other in the Lord. And when we're getting into relationships and then not respecting each other's boundaries, God has a problem with that. God has a problem with that. And so the right way I think, to engage with sex is to see it as a self-giving act, that you're giving yourself over to the person. And there must be an honesty behind that. You cannot say, I give myself to you physically, but I do not give myself to you in a covenant of marriage. I do not give myself to you socially or emotionally or in any other way. I just There's, there's a dishonesty there. A whole self-giving is the essence of a covenantal marriage. To donate yourself over into that union is the essence of covenantal marriage. And so it's within that place that the act of sex becomes honest. That you can express honestly, I belong to you completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. You can express that with a sense of honesty behind it too. It's not a dissonant act anymore. And if that's the case, then good sex, the best sex, is one in which you're not, you're not seeking out uh, self-fulfillment and self-gratification. The best sex would be one in which you're continuing in line with that initial idea, which is that it's a self-giving act. The best sex is one in which your goal is, to pr- is not to sort of get to the end and bask in the pride of like a good performance, being like, I was really good tonight. <laughs> it's kind of the case a lot of the times. Like, there's a temptation to feel that way. The best sex is one in which you give yourself over to the person, that you're serving them, not to get pleasure from yourself, but to give pleasure to the other person. And the interesting thing is, if you do that, if you set that in your mind as the goal of sex, then its intended purpose will lead to greater satisfaction. If that's your mind, I want to give myself over in this act, you will be greatly satisfied in that gift give and take relationship far more than you would be if your goal within the act is simply to get from the other person. I mean, it's just that old principle. It's more blessed to give than to receive. That is same when it comes to, to sex as well. The self-giving, the mutual discovery, and the other-minded service attitude is what is going to grow intimacy within the act. Giving yourself over, discovering things about each other mutually, and, and, and having an other-minded sense of service that's, that's intimacy building. And I know there's a lot of guys that I've spoken to that are afraid to sort of, they're afraid to wait until marriage to have sex because of two reasons. Firstly, because they, they really, they want to be good at sex before they get married. They want to they be able to really give their wife the best. Like this is the attitude they'll have. I want to give my wife the best that I can be. And so I want to, I want to sort of, I want to know about sex more. I want to experiment with things. I want to kind of you know, I want to be ready for marriage. And on the other side, they'll say, you know, what if we're not compatible? You know, what, if, what happens if we don't have sex and on the wedding night we realize that, oh, it's actually really difficult for us to have sex. And, uh, you know, and so one of the guys I was uh, mentoring once literally said, he's like, Chris, you wouldn't, you wouldn't buy a car without test driving at first, would you? So I was like, great metaphor, man. <laughs> but I can speak from experience here. And, and I think this would be very much backed up by a wealth of, of um, other testimonies. Learning together, to, to come into a marriage in which you, you learn about it together, exclusively from each other, in the covenant of like a safe place where 
you know, a covenant is that place where you are, you can really kind of stand before a person like naked, not only physically but emotionally and spiritually naked and say, you know, you're standing before a person who said, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. To that place, to be who you truly are and then to learn together is a beautiful thing. To learn what works and what doesn't work, it's not only a beautiful thing, it can be a funny thing as well. It, it, it can be really funny in an awkward way, but there's intimacy that's built up because of that. There's a sense of togetherness that you bond over these things as well. I don't think sex is supposed to be the super serious thing within a marriage. There's supposed to be a lightness to it. There's supposed to be a loving playfulness to it as well. And you can build that together within a marriage too. And I'm not only speaking from testimonial experience, but also from statistical studies across communities and uh, sort of studies they've done on, on sort of like uh, brain analysis that they have found that the most satisfying sex is found within covenantal marriages, or at least long-term committed monogamous relationships. That's what science is showing, that that is where you'll find the most gratifying, the most satisfying sex life, is within those types of relationships. So that's the view that God takes towards sex. That's the high, lofty goal he sets. He says it's supposed to be for that, and if you do that, it's great, and it's glorious, and it's wonderful. But this is a very, very, very high view to hold to, especially in terms of culture today. A culture today in which there is, if you choose to go after that view, there is zero support for making such a decision as that. Like, people will be flabbergasted by such an idea that you would do that. And our culture is rapidly moving in the other direction, rapidly changing. Over the last few decades, there has been an explosion of highly sexualized content being more and more readily available and more and more just evident everywhere around us. And not only that, but a huge shift in thinking about what is healthy, what is normal, what is acceptable. I can't keep track with what exactly like science is supposed to be saying today about what is, what is true sexuality and true gender and true this and that. It is so quickly moving that it's, it's hard to keep up with everything. And so we're finding ourselves more and more in a situation very akin to what they were going through in Corinth with those passages we read from 1 Corinthians. The, the city of Corinth was a place known for licentiousness, a place where, okay, like you know how today, um, like so I grew up in Zimbabwe where dogs were not allowed inside the house. Like so when I came into Australia and when I came into Canada and I found like people with dogs in their house, I was, no offense Canadians, I was a little bit like, that's like, dogs are dirty. Like, why do you have dogs inside your house? I, anyway, I'm used to it now. It's totally fine. It's not dirty. I get it. But growing up in a culture like Zimbabwe, you, we, everyone, a lot of people had dogs, but very few people allowed the dogs inside their house. We had the freedom to do that because, you know, weather's great there and you often have bigger properties. But in the same way that you would walk into a house in Canada and you wouldn't be at all surprised to see a dog, like, sitting on the couch and you'd be like, oh, whatever. In Corinth? To walk into a person's house and see a, a concubine, see a consort, just sort of sitting, that's like, that's the family sex slave. Like, that was normal. That's how it was. Things like temple prostitution were a very common practice where you would go to, to worship a particular god and you would pay money to, to sleep with the, the deity, uh, the, the, the prostitutes of the, this deity. Uh, that was a way of sort of worship or it's a way of giving tithes and offering over to this particular deity. Also, uh, businesses and like guilds were a big thing there. And so if you were like a, a metal worker or you were some kind of artisan, you would often be part of a guild. And part of these guild meetings was they would worship a particular deity. And a good way to worship a, de a deity at the time was to have these sort of very religiously charged like orgies where they would bring in people and you would have this big drunken orgy. And that was part of doing business. Like being part of the guild meant going to these things, meant doing these things. And so it was, it was like sex was seeped into all these different areas of society. And now comes a, a Paul preaching this gospel, Christians coming in and, and forming a community and like saying, all right, we're going to be different. That's hard. That's really, really hard. And we're going to have a struggle if we do this. I was really surprised. Last week I, I was listening to a podcast and they were talking about the fact that the Barna Institute, the Barna Institute is like a, a group that does um, st statistics in all sorts of different uh, areas. And they said, according to the Barna, a study done by the Barna Institute, 
they surveyed a group of teenagers and found that the teenagers ranked not recycling as more immoral than viewing pornography. Like, you're a worse person. Like, well, it's a worse act to not recycle than it is to view pornography. Which was like, oh, that's, that's different, man. Like, that was not how I grew up at all. Like, that's really, really different. And so, going back to Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 6, where the people are saying, look, I can do anything I want. He's saying, not everything is beneficial. Oh, but I can do anything I want. But I, will be, I won't be mastered by anything. What society might consider normal, Scripture will say, that's harmful. There's danger in that. There's brokenness. That. There's slavery in that as well. And so we look to the Bible, and the Bible says there are very good reasons. There's no rules without reason in the Bible. God doesn't arbitrarily draw lines and say, well, I guess there. There's rules to the laws that God is making here. And there are very good reasons to draw the lines very differently from the rest of the world. This pornified and highly sexualized culture is having a negative impact in many areas of our world. We look just to, we step back and look at a societal level. We see there's a huge breakdown in relationships, particularly in the view towards women. Despite what you might logically think, in that there, there would be a logical thought to say, well, the more access there is to porn, that would mean people would have an outlet for their sexual urges, so that like things like prostitution and other forms of sort of deviancy would go down. Not at all. It is skyrocketing in terms of popularity. There is way more prostitution, way more human trafficking, way more pedophilia going on today than there was. Why? Because it has this, uh, the this, this like escalation is part of it. The things that you you were at one point satisfied with will no longer satisfy you at some point, and so it goes beyond, and it goes beyond, and it goes beyond. And there's a whole web. There's a this. Inextricable, inextricable linking between these different areas. You cannot isolate pornography and say it's its, it's, a, it's, its own industry that has no effect on the other four industries around it. No, no, no. The rise in porn will cause the rise in sex trafficking, will cause the rise in pedophilia, will cause the rise in these other deviant acts. They are all put together. And every time you go in and you, you continue to use porn, you're essentially voting for its continued existence. You're going in there and you say, yes, this is something that should be part of the world. Yes, this is something that I think should continue to be part of, of, of society at large. And it is not at all possible to remove it from the other very damaging, very degrading things that happen. Even if you can somehow justify uh, porn as an industry saying, well, they're, they're paid actors and yada, 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 which is, a, I think, a very foolish argument anyway. But even if you could justify that to yourself, it is linked to all of these other things. Inextricably, inextricably, it cannot be separated as well. Now, not only is it doing a damage, doing damage to the, the world, sort of society at large, but it does damage to us as well. Our relationships are broken apart because of, of like a highly sexualized behavior. Things like porn use, things like you know, just like generally highly sexualized behavior. The if just focus on porn for a second. There is a mirror response to sort of taking rapid release, rapid come down types of, types, types of drugs to, to, uh, to viewing pornography. The drugs like crack cocaine and things like that, in which you get this immediate high followed by a very quick come down. Because of pornography's highly graphic nature, highly novel nature, it becomes highly addictive. Uh, that's your brain feeds on these kind of things and you need more and more of it to keep going. And so it creates escalation. You need to go further. You need to, to watch for longer. You need to watch things that start falling outside of your initial arousal matrix, things that usually, you know, at one stage maybe you weren't at all sort of curious about. Now you start becoming curious about them, and it leads to all these much darker pathways. And so there's this, this changing of our brains that's taking place on, a, on like that sort of neurological level. Not only that, but because of the bonding aspect of it, of sex, we are bonding with our screens. We're bonding with our devices, where our relationships are being damaged by the process. People are experiencing much lower self-esteem, much lower uh, ability to be able to socially interact without anxiety, much lower ability to stay in committed relationships. They're also being physically harmed by it, things like uh, uh, sexual sort of malfunction and, and diff difficulties with, with having sex is happening. Our bodies are being affected by this as well. 
And then our spiritual life. We sin against ourselves by doing these things. This has an impact on us. There is nothing quite like sexual brokenness that brings shame into a person's life. As a pastor, I've seen it many, many times. This, the shame that comes from a broken sexual past. The, 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 the necessity to begin living a double life where you can shift between two modes where you, you're one person behind closed door, you're another person out in public, and you are living in constant fear that someday you're going to be exposed, someday you're going to be found out. And so there's, you, you can't be open and honest with other people because of this, because there's this fear to it as well. It's a distance that's caused between you and God where you cannot feel like you can approach God because you have this weight of sin on your shoulders as well. It's slavery. That's slavery, what we're talking about here. And given the, given the nature of sin generally, and the potency of sex and pornography in particular, it is very easy for us to find ourselves in a place where we just don't want to be, where we're stuck in that place. And sexual habits that we don't want to engage in, and that we feel trapped by, are things that weigh heavily on our hearts. And, and if that's you tonight, I want you to tell, I just want to focus the rest of the sermon on saying change is possible. Like there is a way out of this. It is absolutely possible to find freedom in that place. And the way to find freedom, I think the first thing to do is to see the true cause. The true cause, and, and let's just broadly categorize this as unwanted sexual behavior, right? So it can be porn use, it can be uh, different forms of, of, of sexual intercourse happening with, with, with you know, partners and, and whatever else. Unwanted sexual behavior, I think it can be seen similar to an iceberg. An iceberg in which like, you see the part that's breaking the surface, but there's a huge amount underneath it that's propping all of that up. And so unwanted sexual behavior is the thing that you see above the surface. It's the thing that's kind of coming out of your life. But underneath that all, it, what's being what it's being propped up by is pain. There's pain in your life. And there's a few different types of pain that can go into, um, that, that, can, that can manifest as unwanted sexual behavior. The first kind of pain is the belief that your needs will not be met. That you have a sense of fear and uncertainty as to whether you are going to be fulfilled, whether you are, are going to be, I just I simply get your needs met. And so there is a very fleeting sense of esteem that comes from uh, you know, uh, acting out sexually. It's fleeting and it's fake, but it's there. And so this need, this fear that my needs will never be met, and so I need to somehow take it into my own hands and get whatever I can, however I can, drives us to these places. Secondly, a need for escape without proper healthy ways of finding escape. People, when our lives are full of pressure, of stress, of disappointment and anxiety, we look for ways to escape, even if it's just a moment. And if we don't have healthy outlets, for that, then we turn to things like, like pornography or like these different sex acts that will give us a sense of escape, even if it's just for a moment we feel that we can escape. The third one is uh, slavery, or a sense of, of like thinking, well, uh, effort is futile, like I'm never going to change. When we begin to buy into the lie that change is impossible, and because we buy into that lie, we, we just give up. It's a sense of accepting a, a lower identity of who we truly are, of, of, of buying into an idea that we are just broken at our core and that will never change. And we buy into that and so we just sort of live in that place. The fourth one is unconscious arousal. And this is a bit different. This is what uh, is when, as I'm sure is a very common story these days, um, you have an early exposure to explicit material. So when you're a kid and something happens to you that imprints upon you. Uh, so for instance, I was probably like eight or nine, something around that, when the first time that I, I encountered pornography, a friend of mine brought me into his parents' bathroom. They had like an ensuite bathroom and they had a stack of magazines that his father, I guess, had in the corner. And most of the magazines were like just regular magazines, but hidden. Every sort of every now and then would be a Playboy, 
and I guess it was his father who put them there, and my friend had like found them. And so he pulled them all out, and we spent ages just on the floor flipping through it. And I'm like eight or nine years old, like I have no idea what it is I'm looking at, but I tell you what, I don't remember hardly anything about being eight or nine years old. I remember that. Mm -hmm. Like I remember distinctly the things I saw. It wasn't too much long, too much later that I, I saw my first like graphic movie again at that same friend's house because of his father, mm -hmm. who had this thing. But we ended up watching it, and I distinctly remember this stuff. Mm -hmm. It burned into my brain, and and I'm I consider myself pretty fortunate in the fact that I I did not I have I haven't experienced an abusive past. I haven't experienced uh, something that I know. I mean, I know encounters can go much deeper and darker than that. But I can tell you that even the small thing that I had encountered early on like that, it has had an imprint on me. It's, I've had to work through that stuff. I've had to work through that at different stages of my life and then try to overcome that as well. That stuff burns into your brain. And so it's a cause of pain that needs to be dealt with that can pop up in unwanted sexual behavior. The last one I want to look at is the combination of lust and anger. Because I think lust and anger go hand in hand. Lust is this sort of seemingly kind of uncontrollable desire to go and to, to find satisfaction in this thing. But what often I think lust is, is lust is masking unresolved anger. When you're angry, what you want is a sense of control. You want to control something in your life. And lust can give you an outlet for that because now in, in expressing this, you, you have control over the situation. You have control over this moment. And, it, and it, it, it feeds that unresolved anger in your life as well. And so what you find a lot of times with addicts in particular and sex addicts, uh, I guess so addicts in general, sex addicts in particular, there is this unresolved anger behind it that needs to be dealt with. It's causing a lot of pain. And if you look back through that list, I think what you'll find is that this, a lot of these pains that I've described are symptoms of broken relationships that they are caused by broken relationships with, with the self, with God, with others, uh, with different parts of our psyche. Uh, they're broken relationships. And so when we flip it around, what we can find, if, if really unwanted sexual behavior is, is caused by pain, and this pain is caused by broken relationships, then in order to find healing, we can find healing in good relationships, in good, healthy relationships. And I think where the healing starts is when the gospel comes to bear in our life in a meaningful way. I love John chapter 8, verse 1 to 11, to see how Jesus deals with someone living in sexual sin. John chapter 8. <clears throat> then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to cast a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who had heard, uh, those who had heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir. She said, then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. See, what we see here is Jesus Christ perfectly marrying together grace and truth. Quite often we see those as mutually exclusive things, that if someone comes and confesses sin or someone's dealing with sin, either we can be really hard on them and be like, this is, you know, this is the law, this is how you're supposed to be, or we can be gracious and be merciful and say, well, you know, I forgive you. Jesus brings both of them together. And that is the gospel of grace. The gospel of grace does not take sin lightly at all. But it also doesn't lead to a place where you're, you're punishing yourself with shame and embarrassment and, and sort of like self-flagellating in terms of like trying to you know, atone for your sins. The order of Jesus Christ's statement is very important. Firstly, he says, neither do I condemn you. 
And secondly, he says, go and sin no more. Grace is what enables us to live godly lives. It is his grace that enables us to live a life following after God's heart. We need to find in his grace that strong relational love of Christ. A God that loves us deeply. And that is going to be able to dismiss the lie that is so embedded in our hearts sometimes that says that sex will be the fulfillment that I'm looking for. Sex is going to lead to that thing that I really want. When we find that strong relational love of God, it, it dispels that lie within our heart and we are able to live free from it. And so in order to, to go forward in sexual freedom, we need to have a strong vision of who God says we are and a, a strong vision of God's desires and standards for our life. Because I will tell you, I mean, like you don't already know, but I'm sure you do, in order to live sexually free and to withstand some of the, the, the temptations that will come, it will take more than techniques and tricks. It will take a deep sense of conviction there will be times when your whole brain and heart and body is spinning around and, and, and you just want to give in and saying no seems impossible. At those moments, that's the usefulness of God's command, that they provide that rock of stability for us when every other part of us is just spinning around out of control. Where do we know where to go? That immovable rock stays there. And that's what we need to be holding on to in those times. And it is only a strong relationship with God that can help us in those moments to keep, keep grounded. But also, realize this. Jesus promised a personal relationship with each and every one of us, but he never promised a private relationship with us. The relationship that we have with Jesus Christ is not a private matter. We have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And we, therefore, have a relationship with each other as well. I can tell you, in my life, there has been no secret formula to healing. The only thing that has helped me get through my times of difficulty and temptation and acting out sexually was good, strong relationship with brothers in the Lord. Being able to have strong, grace-filled communities of accountability with other people, be able to come together to confess my brokenness, be able to walk together in holiness, talk through these issues, deal with the pain that is behind them, to allow that shame to be met by grace. You know, it says in, the, in Romans, you know, in view of God's mercy, offer yourself as living sacrifices. What we do as Christians must always be in view of God's mercy. And we need strong ways of encountering God's mercy. And one of the best ways of encountering God's mercy is with each other. We've been able to come together and say, you're not alone. You don't have to go alone. We are with you in the struggle. We don't take your sin lightly, but neither do we think it's appropriate for you to stay away. Come in. If you desire healing, come in with us. And that's what I want us to think about. I want us to become more and more a community in which that is a reality which more and more of us are able to come together around each other, around the gospel of grace, and help each other form good, healthy, grace-filled relationships with each other, ones in which we are able to help each other in this struggle. So lastly, I want to just, just give you a sense of, of the importance of this moment. Remember now, this right now is your present but your present is your future's past. All right? I know that was deep, <laughs> deep, right? Your present is your future's past. I mean to say, what you do now matters. What you do with now will matter where you're going in the future. And when you look back, how your future will look is in part determined by what you're doing right now. Which means that when you enter into whatever stage of life you're in right now, and most of you are single, very few of you are married, but what you do now will affect your future relationships, will affect your marriages. And when you choose to enter into a relationship, you are taking on responsibilities. You're saying to your partner, I will edify you and protect you until marriage. This goes both ways. It is equally important for both. 
You're saying you have a responsibility towards others to be an example of Christ-like conduct to the others in your community and for the couple themselves to be a blessing to the church around them. And you have a responsibility to God to treat His body the way that He desires it to be treated and to remain pure and to seek His will above all others, even your own will. And when you come into a marriage, I want you to be able to say to your spouse, as much as it was up to me, I know it wasn't always up to you, but as much as it was up to me, I prepared myself for you. That I came as much as I could possibly be with, with the baggage that I carry dealt with, the wounds and regrets that, that come from sexual experiences uh, as much as I could in my past that I regard with the utmost seriousness the covenant that we enter into today, and I want to present to you my best self. And so I did all I could to prepare myself for you and to prepare myself for this day. That's the goal that we're heading for. That's what we want, and that is a God-honoring vision for how we are to live in this path. Let me pray together. God, we need you in this world, particularly when it comes to sexual purity, Lord. We live in a world that is really geared in the opposite direction. And so we pray, God, that you might give, lend your strength to us as we go forward from this place, God. We offer what is rightly yours to you again and say, God, this is your body. These are your children that I interact with. The decision of sexual purity has been made already for me. Help me to live in the reality that you have chosen for me. God, I, I pray that you help all of my brothers and sisters in every stage of life to, to be expressing the purity, the holiness, and the glory of the way that you decided and you designed sex to be. And let us do this as a holy offering to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. If you have any questions or if you want to find out more about us, visit our website, peoplesmontreal.org. Look for the links to the CU20 page. There you'll find a collection of our sermons, our podcasts, and the emails for our leadership team. God bless you. Hope you have a wonderful day.